Well, welcome. If you're a visitor today, we especially welcome you. I'm James. I'm one of the pastors here, so we're glad you're here this morning. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we come before you this morning as broken people who need a Savior, people who need redemption. And we recognize that we fall drastically short of your glory. And for my own self, I confess my sins. And like hopefully everyone in this room have seen uh, the, the darkness of my own heart this week. And yet at the same time, because of your grace, the potential. And so we confess our sins and we recognize that Jesus is gracious and he saves us. And as I preach here and as we collectively hear from you, would you take the the broken shards of our life and would they be offered up to you as something that pleases you because of the blood of Jesus, not because of us? Would you help us to get out of the way and glorify Christ? Would we hear from you, as Michael said this morning from Psalm 78, would we listen and would what we hear be passed on to our children, to those young in the faith, to our peers. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn with me to Matthew 10? That's our text this morning, Matthew 10. So red or blue, what will you choose? Red or blue? Blue. Yeah. Not Penn State blue, it's not Nebraska red. Thanks, Jim. Our country is as politically divided as it's ever been. And it seems we're always being forced into one of two camps. There's no gray area. There's no room for compromise. It's either this way or it's that way. In fact, even in the two parties that we have, the two main parties, uh, there's division. And only... uh, the media outlets and social media, they, they only feed the machine. You're always being called to be on one side or the other. And in fact, if you were to ask me, what's one, what's one word you would use to describe our political climate? I would say divided. It's divided. Bipartisanship or nonpartisan politics is almost unheard of. Right? It's laughable. It's grounds for mockery. How dare you try to be balanced and see both sides? And so as Christians, we have to wrestle with, isn't there another way? Isn't there something better for us? This is our last sermon in our series on God and country. And I think this sermon, perhaps more than others, might be the hardest word to hear. As Americans who live in a free nation, who can choose to believe whatever we want, religion, politics, or otherwise, we hold our political affiliations very closely. And when that is the case, it's all too easy to look to a political party or a platform or even a candidate for our sense of truth, our sense of belonging, our sense of safety and security, and even our sense of redemption. And so when we come to Matthew 10, we're forced to answer a question. Where is your true allegiance? Jesus, we're going to see, is the one who actually brings true division. But he's not forcing you to choose between red and blue. He's not forcing you to choose between conservative and liberal. 
He's forcing you to choose between politics and everything else and himself. That's what we come to today. And the main point today is this. Jesus demands our highest allegiance. That's one of the simplest main points we'll ever have in a sermon, and it's one of the hardest ones to actually do. Jesus demands our highest allegiance. So we're going to start with Jesus' small group, his band of disciples. So turn to Matthew 10, 1 through 4. We're just going to read verses 2 through 4. Here's what it says. He, so he calls the 12 disciples in verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles or disciples are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, this, uh, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So it's interesting that there's 12 guys here in this small group. And Matthew lists the vocation of one and the affiliation of another and doesn't say anything about the uh, background or lifestyle of any of the others. The two are Matthew himself and Simon, the zealot. So let's look at these two guys. Matthew. Matthew's a Jew. He's also a tax collector. He is a Roman government employee. And as a Roman government employee, he was essentially a traitor. He was looked at as a traitor. Tax collectors back then didn't earn a salary. What they did was they would go up to you and say, your tax is $100. Rome only needs 90 so Matthew pockets 10. So Matthew not only says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, he says, give to Matthew what's Matthew's. Right? So he was looked down upon by everyone. He was hated by the religious establishment and, and anyone in Judea. He was seen as a traitor. So he would be like a corrupt IRS tax collection agent. Corrupt, extremely corrupt. He'd be our token liberal in the group. Big government, taxes, and I'm, a, I'm opposed, or everybody is opposed to him because of his, the nature of his job. He was, he was a Roman employee. Now we have Simon. Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were actually a religious party or a political party. They were a band of revolutionaries who wanted to take back Judea, the land they lived in, from Rome. And actually, the zealots started a revolt against Rome in A.D. 66, about 30-some years later. Now, the zealots were people who were always packing a sword, whether they had a permit or not. And they were always ready to brawl with a centurion. They are, they are evidently, uh, some scholars believe, connected to the Pharisees. And so they added some sort of violence and rebellion to a religious Context. And so Simon would be our token conservative, almost, almost like an anarchist, somebody who is ready to protect from the big bad government. Those two people are in Jesus' small group. Because of the size of Judea in the first century, there's a good chance that these guys knew each other or at least crossed paths at some point. You know, Galilee wasn't a booming metropolis with millions of people. There were several thousand people, maybe a hundred thousand people. There's a good chance they knew each other, and Jesus brings them into his small group. 
Imagine if these two guys were in your small group this year. Do you think you'd ever get to that text that you wanted to study that night? So you're doing Philippians or you're doing Deuteronomy. Do you think you'd ever get there? As soon as somebody mentioned the convention, what do you think would happen? Matthew and Simon would be going at it. Tax collector and the zealot. Now Jesus didn't accidentally bring these two guys, these two political opposites, to his group. He knew what he was doing. Jesus is constituting a new nation. That's kind of what Matthew's doing in the gospel. And you see that in other gospels too, but especially in Matthew. He's constituting a new nation, not a geopolitical nation, not a spatial nation, but a spiritual nation. A spiritual nation that is uh, united around him and his mission despite differences of race, ethnicity, culture, politics, and even religious background. That's what he's bringing together. And then he gets ready to send them on a short-term mission trip. Look at verse 7. Here's what it says. He's telling them to go. Proclaim as you go, verse 7, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I won't go into the detail. We don't have time to read it. But you could read through verse 33, and you could see the mission trip uh, teaching and instruction that Jesus gives. But the main message is this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a new nation in town. And you have Matthew and Simon going out together. And I have to believe that Jesus had a sense of humor. And he, he bumped them together. I have to believe that he made them evangelism partners on this mission trip. How do you think those conversations went down the road? So, gun control, huh? I mean, sword control. <laughs> you been to that government healthcare website? I didn't think so. I mean, imagine that. Just imagine the conversations. The most extreme liberal you can think of and the most extreme conservative you can think of together on Jesus' team on a mission trip walking down the road together. Bunking together. They were a team. Jesus is bringing together this diverse community of love and humility and grace, and it looks completely different than all the things that we see in this world, political or otherwise. That's the new community. That's the new nation that Jesus is building. Jesus chose these men to display to the world that allegiance to him and not anything else is primary. Jesus shows them this first by inviting them in. Right? I mean, he made a statement right there at the very beginning just by inviting them into the group. In what group in the first century would Simon and Matthew be in the same group? But Jesus has come in, so he shows them. But then he tells them. So look at the end of the passage, verses 34 through 37. So this is right after the mission instructions. He's still talking to his disciples. Now think about that. The words that I'm going to read, he's still talking to the men who want to follow him. That means he's talking to you and me if you want to follow him. Here's what he said. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Whoa, Jesus. I didn't come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That one's obvious.
I have a wife <laughs> and a mom. So I know how that goes. Sorry, we'll edit that one out. And a person's enemies, hear this, a person's enemies will be that, those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What Jesus is doing is he's using Hebrew hyperbole. Hyperbole, remember back to grammar school, exaggeration. He's using exaggeration to make a point. Kids, he's not telling you hate your mom and dad. He's not telling you don't obey your mom and dad. Parents, he's not saying don't provide for your children and hate your children. What he's doing is he's looking at the basic unit of allegiance in our society, the society of humans, which is family, and he's saying, if you love those people more than me, you can't follow me. And I can almost guarantee you, when Matthew and Simon heard that, they heard, you can't love political party, persuasion, platform more than me. Anything. That's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's taking the most basic thing, the highest thing, and he's saying, if you love that more than me, you can't follow me. What does that sound like? Sounds like the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. None. You can't have any. It doesn't work that way in Jesus' kingdom. And so do you see the irony of what Jesus is doing? He's actually dividing in order to bring unity. But as I said at the beginning, he's not dividing between red over here and blue over here. It's politics and everything else, family allegiance or otherwise, and him. And the dividing line is drawn in the sand, and he's saying, make a choice. And, and what we know is all but one, Judas, stayed with him. All but one. They said, we want Jesus more than anything else. So what will you choose? I'm not asking you to choose red or blue, unless it's Penn State and Nebraska, and then you've got, you got a really hard decision to make. I'm not asking you about red and blue, liberal or conservative. I'm asking you about Jesus. Will you choose him over all the rest? Now, here's something important to realize about Jesus. Jesus does a great job at offending both sides. You can't put him in a, in a political box, and here's why. Liberals, think about this, liberals love when Jesus talks about forgiveness and when he forgives. But they hate it when he calls people to repentance and actually says, no, there is such a thing as sin and morality and ethics, and you are wrong. Conservatives love when Jesus talks about personal responsibility and fiscal stewardship, but they hate when he talks about feeding the poor and taking care of the vulnerable and the homeless and the refugee. Do you see what he's doing? He's drawing a line, and he's not saying, I don't, he's saying, I don't want you to pick political sides. I want you to pick my side. So he offends both parties. And so it forces us to ask a hard question. So here it is. You might want to write this down so you can think about this. Do I find myself more at home with people who share my politics than my faith? I'll say it again. Do I find myself more at home with people who share my politics than my faith? Now at first glance, 
or first hearing that, you might say, well, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not very political. Well, no, you might not be an activist, but the scary part about sin is that you don't know it's happening. It happens almost subconsciously. Look back at your Facebook posts, your tweets, your blogs. What are you reading? We're all slanted one way or the other. Everybody in this room needs repentance, right? If you would be more content in Cleveland or Philadelphia than right here worshiping Jesus with God's people, then you have to repent. There's something that needs to change. And repentance is a good word here. It means I'm going God's way rather than my way. Matthew and Simon were friends. And Matthew thought that was important enough for us to know. There's a reason he said Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. He wanted us to know they were friends, they were opposites, and it shaped the way they would live together for the rest of their lives. I wish there was more on them. I wish there was more written about them. And we don't know. It's all speculation, but what we know is Matthew thought we should know this. So when Jesus is king, tax collectors and zealots come together in miraculous unity. And only God could do this. I mean, the world couldn't produce this. When Jesus has our highest allegiance, we start to appreciate each other's views, each other's passions, each other's differences. We learn to correct each other when we're out of balance, and I'll come back to that in a bit. But we also realize, no, correction is necessary. Conformity to Jesus is necessary. When Jesus has our highest allegiance, we'll seek to do each other good, not evil. We'll seek to build each other up, not tear each other down. We won't be a walking political ad. We'll be people who build each other up and support each other and encourage each other. That's the way of the kingdom. Now we ask, how does this happen? Like, how in the world can we even do this? What resources do we have to tap into in order to do this? And it comes at the end of the passage. Look at verses 38 and 39. Jesus says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So there's two things going on here. One is pretty clear. The first one is there's an invitation. And the second one is there's a power. And the invitation goes like this. Abandon your divisive, in our context, as we're thinking about politics, abandon your divisive, angry, partisan politics for something infinitely better. When Jesus talks about dying, when he talks about taking up your cross, what he's intimating is a public execution. That's what they heard when Jesus said, cross. Take up your cross. Publicly die to all of your ambitions, to all of your allegiances, and follow me. Let me be your allegiance. So it's an invitation. Come. Come follow me. Now, where's the power to do it? Where's he going? Where's the gospel of Matthew in? With him going to the cross, right? And then rising from the dead victoriously. Every gospel ends there. That's the story. He's going to die. He's going to lay his life down. He's going to lay his life down for liberals and conservatives, 
both of whom have fallen short of the glory of God and need a Redeemer. That's what Jesus is going to do. And that's where we get the power to reject partisanship and cynicism and vitriol and anger and bitterness and find our true allegiance in Him and love Him, as Catherine so beautifully said a minute ago to the kids, to love Him the most. Listen to Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. So that's interesting, because Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. But we know that the way He brings peace is that He brings division. He brings unity by dividing. The passage goes on. He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The Apostle Paul is writing there, and he's talking about Jew and Gentile relations. And he's saying, Jew and Gentiles, there couldn't be two different people. He's brought them into one. The Jesus who has the power to bring together Jews and Gentiles has the same power to bring together Matthews and Simons. The walls are broken down. And now you become a new nation. Now you become a new family. It's only through the gospel, which is a great reconciler, that something new and something beautiful is created. It's only through the gospel that Matthews and Simons can stand lockstep, arm in arm, and look at the other person and say, this is my brother. Think about that. Think about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton saying, this is my brother and this is my sister. You might get a little bit of that on election night, right, when one of them loses. But in the kingdom of God, two people who are very different can say, this is my brother, this is my sister. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can give you the resources that you need to reject division with your brothers and sisters and those outside. Only the gospel can do it. And only the gospel can provide the grace of forgiveness that you and I need when we fail. Right? Taking up our cross isn't what saves us. Jesus taking up his cross is what saves us. So when you slip up, like I often do, and you, you get sucked into the political machine, Jesus is there. And then he's saying, follow me. Follow me. I'm ready to forgive you. I'm a good king. You, you walk away from me, I'm never going to walk away from you. Now when this good news becomes real, something happens. And that's the most important thing. Change happens. When this really sinks in, this idea that Jesus has our highest allegiance, and it's not red or blue or green or tea or whatever the other ones are. When Jesus has our highest allegiance, we're going to be free from taking political sides. We're going to be free from opening up the canned political answer and giving people the Republican answer or giving people the Democrat answer. We're going to be free from using those answers to solve the world's problems. Because everyone, especially politicians, have good, has good news. Right? They're offering us good news. And they're saying, there's all these problems in our country. There's all these problems in the world. Here's good news. I'll fix it. Or we can fix it. Here's redemption. But as Christians, we know there's only one person who can offer and give and accomplish redemption. So when we have this freedom, it means that we're free from uniformity. 
Here's the thing to remember about Matthew and Simon. Matthew still identified them as the tax collector and the zealot. There's differences. There's not uniformity, but there's unity. Right? There's partnership. There's family, but there's not sameness. So we won't agree on every single issue, but by grace, over time, what's going to happen as the gospel works in us is our perspective will change. Our views will take on a Christ-centered shape and perspective. And Christ's glory, not political ideology, will become supreme. The scriptures, this is important, hear me on this, the scriptures and that party platform is what's going to shape our views, right? And when there's error in our views, and there will be, conformity to the scripture is required. And so that means there's going to be times when you offend both sides. And you should offend at times both sides. But let me also say this, where God's word is silent, and in our contemporary political culture, there are a lot of issues where the Bible's silent, right? When God is silent, we can enter into respectful debate, we can enter into gracious compromise, and we can pursue just practice together and just policy together. And some of you are more passionate about this than others. But for all of us as a community and as members of the wider community, we can be a model of those things because we can, by the grace of God, escape the criticism and the anger and the bitterness out there. There's a better way. There's the kingdom way. So two things to keep in mind as I say that so you don't mishear me. Government is ordained by God and it is good. And so if you're somebody who works in government, you have a passion, you want to pursue politics, go there. Go there Christianly. Be a champion, not for Jesus as president, but for someone who knows the truth and can walk the line and work with people. And remember that Jesus is the redeemer and no party or platform. Second thing, for, for most of us in general, this freedom that I'm talking about, it produces participation with realistic expectations. So you don't have to say, well, I'm not even going to care. I'm not going to read anything. I'm not even going to show up on voting day. I'm not going to uh, pray for my leaders. I'm going to move to Canada. You can participate. You can participate wisely, but you can also participate realistically. You can participate knowing that, for goodness sakes, the United States is only 250 years old. How old is the world? Let's not get into that. <laughs> There's countries that are way older than us. Carly and I were talking about this the other night, and we're like, we're like adolescents on the block. And sometimes adolescents think they know everything. And sometimes America's like that too. But we can be different. Right. We can participate joyfully, responsibly, humbly, but also realistically. So here's where I'm going to close. Do we make the world shake its head? Do we make the world shake its head? Fox News and CNN don't get this. They hear this and they go, what? That's nuts. Are you kidding me? The world doesn't work like that. And we could say, the world's not working right anyway. 
But in the kingdom of God, we can be a picture of something different. Jesus flips the values of the world upside down. And I think if we lived this way, among us and in the wider community, people would see something strangely beautiful, strangely attractive. And they might not think it's true, but they might wish it were true. They might say, I wish that could be. And if you can get someone there, then they're a little bit closer, right? They're a little bit closer to seeing the light and to seeing Christ. So listen to Jesus today. He's asking us, where's your ultimate allegiance? Where's your true love? Won't you die to your political allegiances, your platforms, your policies, your other loves? I'm your king. Lose your life. And if you lose it, you'll find it. And when you find life, know that it's because you found me. And in me, you'll find everything you've been looking for in red and blue. You'll find Jesus. You'll find life. That's what he's saying to us this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Father, the words of Jesus are hard, and, and I'd be the first to confess that they probably don't seem or feel as hard as they should. It was a devastating thing for Jesus to say. If you love your mom or your dad or your kids more than me, you can't even follow me. So may we not dismiss that word. May we receive the hard sayings of Jesus, this one being one of the hardest. And as we think about it in the context of the political division in our country, may we remember everyone's calling for our allegiance and begging us for their vote. But the only vote that really matters is what we think about Christ. And so we pray for help. We want Jesus to be our highest love and our highest allegiance. Would you help this church and would you help your big C church around the world to be different, to show that Christ, not politics, is supreme? Thank you for the grace of forgiveness when we fail and the grace to empower us to obey and walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And we pray that you would do that in us. We are excited to see what you might do, especially in this election season. So for all of us Matthews and Simons in the room, would we stand united in Christ and on his mission to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven, a new nation, is at hand. A new nation has come to town. And may we represent you well as your emissaries, as your ambassadors, with boldness and courage and great humility and compassion to others and each other. In Jesus' name, amen.